Holy Spirit asks that you would please help us to understand these words from Scripture and apply them to our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Someone sent me a story about a new CEO, and the outgoing CEO said to him, you know, along the way you're just going to make some mistakes. You'll mess up. That's just a fact of life. So when you do, I've left three envelopes in your desk. First time you mess up, open the first one, second time, the second one, and on and on. Well, the first few months just went great, but then the CEO made a mistake. So he went to the drawer, opened the first envelope, and it said, blame me. So he did. He said, this is the old CEO's fault. I inherited this problem. He learned that from politicians. <laughs> Things went fine for a while, but then he messed up a second time. So he opened the second envelope, and it said, blame the board. So he said, this is the board's fault. They made this decision. That's what he told everyone. Well, then a little while later, he messed up a third time. So he opened the third envelope, and it said, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> we all have a way of messing up our lives through our own bad choices. So today, we're starting a new sermon series called How to Really Mess Up Your Life about the kings in the book of, uh, about the kings of Israel in the Bible, because Israel's kings are sort of like a how-to manual of how to mess up. And basically, it's this. Ignore what God says to do and do things your way. Sort of like the old saying, what's the difference between you and God? God never gets confused and thinks he's you. And if we make that confusion, it turns out we mess up our lives big time. So we're going to study the kings of Israel, hoping to avoid the mistakes they've made. But let me start with just a brief review. As you know, we're doing a lot of sermon series chronologically through the Bible. And by now, you may be wondering, okay, where are we in the Bible? So look at this table of contents. And let me just quickly review. We started talking about Abraham and his descendants, Jacob and Joseph. Their stories are in Genesis. Then we talked about how their descendants became slaves in Egypt until Moses led them out of bondage in the books of Exodus and Numbers. Then in the book of Joshua, Joshua led them into the Promised Land, where they lived under local tribal leaders called Judges in the book of Judges for 300 years. Then in 1 Samuel, they pick a king named Saul, who turns out lousy. So God picked David to be the next king, and we just finished talking about him. David started really strong until he had an affair with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered to cover up the affair. That set off a chain of events in David's family that led to one son raping his sister and the other son launching a civil war against David. And if you think you got problems in your family, right? David wins that, but his son dies. After David, Solomon, his son, becomes king. Solomon also started strong, but then in the end, he ended up marrying over 700 wives, which caused huge problems. <laughs> That's weird. 700 spouses, it turns out, really can mess up your life. Note to self, all right? When Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, became king, and that's the story we read this morning. But before Rehoboam had been king for even a week, he causes a civil war. The nation divided into the northern ten states become the country of Israel. The southern two become the country of Judah, and they are never again reunited. Now, when you're king and you cause a civil war within a week, that's really messing up. And I think this story shows us three ways 
that can be instructive to us for how we can mess up our lives and how to avoid doing that. The first is we mess up our lives when we have an attitude of entitlement. The background to this story is that Solomon, Rehoboam's father, spent a fortune building his palace, foreign wars, all kinds of things, which meant oppressive taxes for the people. So when Rehoboam becomes king, the people ask for some relief. But he says, no, I'm king. I get to do what I want to do. He doesn't understand that in the Bible, being a leader does not mean you get to boss people around. Biblical leaders empower others to become everything that they are created to be in, in Christ. They are servant leaders. But Rehoboam doesn't have that attitude. He has an attitude of entitlement. I'm the king, so I deserve. I think this is hugely relevant to our culture today. Because we are, wow, you guys are, oh yeah, name. <laughs> Fantastic. little Pentecostal thing happening over here. <laughs> we exist in a very affluent culture of entitlement, and you see it everywhere. I just read a study that showed that people pull out of a parking spot more slowly if someone is waiting for it than if not. <laughs> if you ever wanted proof of original sin, that's it. <laughs> the reason they discovered is because if someone's waiting for it, the spot was perceived as more valuable and the person felt entitled to keep it a little longer. It's like our motto is, I exist, therefore I deserve. And I know this is true of me. If I don't get what I want, I feel like the universe has committed a crime. But that attitude of entitlement just messes us up. It becomes a problem in our friendships and marriages as we have inflated expectations of what the other person should do for us. And of course, they have their expectations for us as well. Pretty soon everyone's mad. It's a problem in churches and businesses and families as everyone tries to get their own way, disregarding others. It makes us feel stressed out as we keep grasping to get what we want, and we end up with bitterness, envy, and disappointment. Good news here is the way out is actually pretty simple. And it's what the elders advise Rehoboam to do. They say, if today you will serve these people, they will always be your servants. In other words, if instead of an attitude of entitlement, we seek to serve each other, our relationships are going to be better, we'll have more peace, we're going to be happier. And to us, that seems kind of counterintuitive because we think, no, the way to be happy is to get what I want. Well, the only reason it seems counterintuitive to us is because our culture has wrecked our intuition. If we serve each other, not be doormats that get taken advantage of, but seek to empower one another, we'll actually be happier. Just one example. Think of how happy marriages would be if husbands and wives competed with each other to outserve one another. They're constantly trying to serve one another both ways. Think how fun marriage would be, or friendship, or the office, or whatever. I recently read some research on folks in their 80s and their 90s that showed that those who served in some way had greater life, uh, life satisfaction, less loneliness, less illness, less depression, and they lived longer. Serving brings us peace. It's what Earl Palmer calls putting your weight on the downhill ski. Seems counterintuitive. You know, when you first learn to ski, you know, your temptation is sort of lean, lean back into the mountain, you know, which is what makes you fall. What you have to do is put your weight forward on the downhill ski and pick up a little speed, and that's actually how you'll stay more stable. Now, when you're first learning, that just seems stupid, doesn't it? Right? Like, no, no, downhill is bad, dangerous, death awaits me. <laughs> right? It's counterintuitive, but it works. It's the same way with serving. So how can you put your weight on the downhill ski? Let go of feeling entitled this week and serve someone, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers. 
Second way we mess up our lives is when we ignore godly counsel. The elder uh, group of counselors tell Rehoboam to be a servant to the people, and then the younger men that he consults tell them, no, just oppress them even more. Rehoboam listens to the wrong people. When we do not listen to the people God has put in our lives to guide us, people like mentors, pastors, godly friends, parents, spouses, that's a big one. When we don't listen to them, we mess up our lives because those people often know things we don't know and more importantly can see things in our lives that we can't see. I have a rule in my life called the more than two people rule. If more than two people say I've got a problem with something, for instance, if more than two people say I come off as cold, arrogant, and aloof, just say. <laughs> more than two people hypothetically said that of me. <laughs> if more than two people say I've got a problem, I've got a problem regardless of how I feel about it and I need to address it because others can see things we can't. Now, we have to test the advice we get because, you know, pastors, mentors, spouses, they can be wrong. They can give us bad advice. Sort of like a story someone sent me about a sheep herder who was looking after his sheep and car stopped and the driver said, if I can tell you how many sheep you have, will you give me one of your sheep? And the shepherd said, sure, why not? So the man pulled out a calculator, spreadsheets, all this stuff, and he said, you have exactly 758 sheep. The shepherd said, you're right. The man said, great, I'll take one of your sheep. And he just grabs an animal and puts it in the car. Shepherd said, well, if I guess your profession, will you give me my animal back? And the man said, well, sure. And the shepherd said, you're a consultant. The man said, how'd you know? And the shepherd said, easy. You came here without being called. You charged me a fee to tell me something I already knew. And you don't understand anything about my business. Now give me my dog back. I like that one, too. <laughs> we can get bad advice, right? Rehoboam, after all, has two sets of consultants. So how could he have figured out which ones to listen to? Well, he could have tested what they said against Scripture, and he would have discovered that God calls us to be servant leaders, not entitlement people. And he could have prayed about it, neither of which he does. So we have to test the advice we get, but godly counsel can help us thrive. Who is speaking into your life? And are you listening to them? Really? And where might you need to ask for some godly counsel, but you don't want to do that because you don't want to admit that you got a problem with something? Not that that would be an issue in a community like ours, but just in case. We mess up our lives with an attitude of entitlement when we don't listen to godly counsel, both of which lead to the third thing that messes up our lives. And I'm going to spend the rest of the time on this because it's the main issue in this story. We mess up our lives when older and younger generations don't bless each other and share leadership together. Now, of the top 10 things you needed to hear, this may not seem like the most relevant thing to your life. But hang on, I actually think it's pretty relevant, and it's, it's the main issue in this story. There's a huge generational conflict going on in this story. There's the word father comes up over and over again. There's this sort of this rebellion against the previous generation. And Rehoboam has two sets of counselors, one his father's age, one his own age. It's a generational divide. And Rehoboam and his friends don't listen to or respect the older generation, as they're called to do biblically. And it's sort of like their attitude is, you guys are has-beens, dinosaurs, we're here now, right? In fact, they come off with one of the most pompous lines in the Bible. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. 
My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. Well, aren't we the big man on campus, right? But there's also some background here that's important because the older generation may have started this problem. There's no mention in the Bible that Solomon and the older generation respected Rehoboam or prepared him by relinquishing power to him, by allowing him to make key decisions, by listening to his advice. And other places in Scripture, there's a far different pattern. Moses shares leadership and is guided by the younger Joshua. The same with Elijah and Elisha or the apostle Paul and Timothy. But in this story, each generation had a, cultural of, a culture of entitlement out to get its own way, and older folks weren't listening to the counsel of younger and vice versa. And this messes up our lives. In our own culture, ever since the 60s, we've had a lot of generational conflict. Right? And you see it in churches as people kind of argue about music and ways to do church and all that. And we do a little better here. But, you know, nationwide, it's a huge problem. You see it in businesses. And boy, howdy, do you see it in families where the kids are all grown up. Lots of generational conflict. But more than messing up our lives, when the generations don't bless each other and share leadership, we impoverish our lives. You see, throughout Scripture, God has this beautiful vision of community where older and younger are combining their skills, their gifts, their talents. Right? And they're learning from one another. And they're moving forward together in shared leadership. It is a beautiful vision throughout the Bible. And many of you know the power of this vision. In your workplace or in a church or in your family, you know the, how powerful it was when someone older said to you, here, you lead and I'll follow. They stepped aside so we could take the reins. And it was a turning point in our lives. And I also know many of you because I see you doing this. Many of you know the power of being that older person who empowers someone else to thrive. And you have younger people in your life who have said to you, you've changed my life. You're the most important person in my life. Without you, I never would have been where I am today. Many of you are doing this, I know. Right? In fact, one of the most frequent requests I get from people younger in this church is, can you get me a mentor? And you know the power of being that person. I see in lots of places in this church. I've told you in the past about the man I worked for in California, the pastor, senior pastor there one of the most important men in my life. He was my greatest cheerleader. He saw abilities in me I didn't see in myself. And he had 60 years of wisdom he used to guide me in everything from how to preach and lead to my marriage. And I listened to him. But he also handed me power. He gave me his pulpit. Often, at the end, I was preaching more than he was. He allowed me to make key decisions and shape the course of the church. He did not have an attitude of entitlement. And he listened to my counsel even though I was younger, and I, of course, listened to his. And it was powerful for both of us. I've told him many times, you are one of the most significant people in my life. Without you, I never could have done what I've done. Walt. He got a younger man who respects and admires him and to this day still calls him for advice. And I got someone who believed in me and empowered me and guided me. And do you think I ever once thought, you old, irrelevant dinosaur of a man, sort of like Rehoboam and his friends? Why don't you just retire so I could be senior pastor here? You know, my little finger is thicker than your waist. You just, you're just in the way. I never thought that. You know why? Because that wasn't where he was standing. He wasn't standing in front of me. He was standing behind me, cheering me on. And it was a blessing for both of us. When generations bless one another and follow each other's leads, our lives is richer. And this is God's vision. And it's got to go both ways. We need the visionary leadership of the younger generation. Yes, older folks have tons of wisdom to offer because we have all this experience. But let's also be honest, sometimes another word for that experience is baggage, right? 
And the younger generation often sees what we don't see, knows what we don't know, and can do what we can't do. In the Bible, when Moses brought the people to the edge of the promised land, you remember the story, he sends 12 spies in. The two younger ones come back and say, this is great, we can take the land. But the older generation says, ooh, giants, scary, we can't do it. Convince the people to give up. And they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years because they didn't listen to the younger generation. In our own time, people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and more recently Sergey Brin and Larry Page who started Google, while they were in their 20s, saw things that an older generation of business leaders did not see and regret not listening to them to this day. Ask IBM. <laughs> we need the visionary leadership of the young, but we also need the wisdom of the older generation. And that sometimes isn't respected in our culture, is it, either? Because we're youth-oriented, right? Everyone wants to be young. Someone just told me about a friend of theirs, a, a man in his late 40s, and he was on a bus and it was crowded, so he was standing, and, and there was this young woman there who kept smiling at him. And so he started to think, yeah, I've still got it. <laughs> I've still got it. Until she said, excuse me, sir, would you like my seat? <laughs> we worship youth in our culture. And sometimes the older generation is made to feel that we're irrelevant, right? And that's not true. We've got lots to offer. And when each generation lets go of entitlement and each generation listens to the godly counsel of others, everybody wins. An elder in our church told me this week that when she was in high school, the youth in her church had a vision to buy a camp where people could go, find out about Jesus, have their lives changed. And they heard that the church janitor was retiring, so th they thought a great way to do that would be the youth would take over the maintenance of the church property, collect the $50 a week salary to the janitor, and put it toward buying that camp. She said there was just one problem, the board of trustees, and more specifically, Mr. Feuder. And she said Mr. Feuder, who was the chairman of the board of trustees, looked sort of like the stern father, Mr. Banks, in Mary Poppins. You know, kind of always had this three-piece suit on. The mere sight of him, she said, just conjured fear. And Mr. Feuder, as long as anyone could remember, had been the, the chairman of the board of trustees, and no way Mr. Feuder would let a bunch of youth take over the maintenance of church property. And this woman said, whenever I thought about having to face Mr. Feuder, the glamour of our dream just sort of faded. Well, one Sunday she was visiting with friends after church in the lobby, and she turned around and suddenly came face to face with Mr. Feuder. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit inspired her to say something profound. She said, why, Mr. Feuder, I like your tie. And he just turned away and walked off without saying a word. Well, the next Sunday, um, she was in the, in, the, in the lobby having a conversation with her friends, and again she turned around, and again there was Mr. Feuder. And this time he looked at her and he said, how do you like my tie? <laughs> Which was kind of a risk, right? He could have been rejected. Well, a couple of ties later, she and Mr. Feuder became friends. <laughs> In fact, one Saturday, Mr. Feuder asked her to take his car to the car wash, but as she was backing out of the driveway, another car came speeding along, crashed into hers, and it wasn't her fault, but there was a dent in Mr. Feuder's car. He just walked over and said, you just go get it washed, bring it back, I can fix that. No drama. Well, that kind of opened up his heart, and Mr. Feuder became the champion of the youth taking on the janitor's role. And then two years later, when it came time to buy the camp, Mr. Feuder became the advocate for that as well. 
They bought the camp. It's still in existence today. Thousands of lives have been changed as people have come to know Jesus, made lifelong friendships. The camp also has an outreach to inner-city youth, underprivileged kids, and refugee families. Everyone was blessed. The younger generation saw something the older generation didn't, and the older generation was willing to do some things the younger folks' way, but they also provided valuable wisdom as they went in navigating all of that. Now, do you think Mr. Feuder felt displaced or like he'd lost something? Of course not. He and his wife didn't have kids of their own. This was a way that youth could be a part of their lives, and he got to empower the next generation who looked to him as their champion. Neither had an attitude of entitlement. They listened to each other's counsel, and they shared leadership, and everyone benefited. You see, God dreams a bigger dream for us than we often dream for ourselves of a community where people are serving each other, listening to each other, and sharing leadership together. And when we do things his way, not our way, our lives get better and we are blessed. So how about you? It is the start of a new year. So here are three resolutions that you can make that will change your life. I will relinquish my attitude of entitlement and serve others wherever I can find to do that. I will listen to the godly counsel in my life and test it and follow it when it's from God. And in my home, my office, my neighborhood, I will look for ways to bless and share leadership both with the generation ahead of me and the generation behind me. You make those three resolutions, you're going to have great relationships, you're going to have profound community, you're going to have more peace, your life will get bigger, richer, deeper, better, and I promise you 2010 will be amazing. So Holy Spirit, help us to do that. We want to do things our way. But Lord, ask that you would please Guide us to do things your way, to listen to the counsel you put into our lives, and to serve one another. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.